2: Welcome to the Mr. Beacon podcast. This week, we're talking to Inigo Canalejo, who is the vice president of ESG at IFCO. So why focus on ESG? Why have a whole episode on this uh, subject? Uh, The environment, social, and governance function is one of the hottest positions in any company. If you're selling IoT or designing IoT solutions, You really need to be thinking about the impact of sustainability on the opportunities that face you. As we bring digital and physical convergence together, then our ability to understand what's happening in an enterprise and give data to to this function, which is, uh, in this case, reporting directly to the CEO. In other cases, to the CFO. It's a a very important part of any entrepreneur's calculus as they map out the opportunities, they think about their sales strategies. So I think you'll enjoy the conversation with Inigo. I certainly did. Uh, He's a really uh, smart, uh, uh, globe-trotting guy and a lot uh, to, to learn from here. And I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. The Mr. Beacon podcast is sponsored by Williot intelligence for everyday things powered by IoT Pixels. So, uh, Inigo, thanks so much for joining us on the Mr. Beacon podcast.
3: Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here.
2: So um, you head up uh, ESG at IFCO, and ESG is gone from being kind of an artifact, a sideline of a business, and it's become, uh, you know, a central driver, um, and super important. This podcast is, you know, we're focused on uh, uh, arming uh, entrepreneurs, uh, solution designers, and, uh, you know, I-, I personally believe that we need to design with Sustainability in mind, so I thought you would be a great person to have on to explain what ESG is, what the implications uh, are, and what the the opportunities and the threats are uh, if people uh, don't uh, <laughs> don't think about it. So uh, thanks for coming on the show to to talk about
3: all of that. Uh, my pleasure. So yeah, a lot of people ask me actually, what does the, what does ESG actually mean? So environmental, social, and and governance and. Mm-hmm. And again, what's the difference with other previous topics or words that were used, uh, probably for similar purposes, like CSR initially, and and of course sustainability as well. No, for me, it's a uh, they, they all sort of mean the same in reality. Uh, maybe ESG is a bit broader, which I think is good because at the end, what this is is you know looking at business and and what we do from from a different lens, right? So uh, a very let's say wide lens, uh, looking at it from from an environmental point of view. A lot of people. Associate sustainability only with the environmental piece, but of course, you know there is the the social piece, the the part of the of the supply chain, uh, the part around uh, health and safety, the part around diversity. There are so many say, areas that that are part of what we do that wouldn't be, uh, let's say, part of the definition of sustainability. Let's say the environmental piece. So it's definitely a, a broader term, and of course, the governance, which is around. Okay, how? how are you running your business now and, and and all of the let's say um structures but also i would say all of the ethics behind what what you're doing so to me what's great about esg and why it is, it is so important for businesses nowadays is that again know the, the concept of the triple bottom line is you can no longer evaluate a company just by its its returns to to investors you need to look at say uh, the, the the whole broad picture of, of what it's doing for the environment what it's doing for society what it's doing for its employees and its communities no? um, and that's the beauty of it because we are basically companies are sort of questioning what they do you know within let's say the purpose and and what the what the ultimate goal of the of the business is but most importantly how they do it and I think that's that's the really interesting part because you know the people that work at ESE like ourselves basically we, we have an opportunity uh, to influence uh, how we do things, almost in you know every every single thing that the company does. Now it touches so many different elements. It touches everything that the that the company is involved in, and therefore uh, it's it's really inspiring to be able to influence that as well. And, very good. And when we, and when we talk about threats and opportunities, look, every company has its own threats and opportunities related to ESG. Of course, it very much depends on the industry that you're in and the type of business that you have. But overall, I, the way I see it is, is mainly opportunities. Of course, you know, uh, for us, we're blessed because of what we do. We work in reusable packaging. We are uh, certainly a pioneer in, in the concept of the circular economy. IFCO started 30 years ago uh, sharing and, and reusing packaging, applying the principles of the circular economy when almost nobody knew what the circular economy was. Right. So we are fortunate to have a business model. That is actually intrinsically sustainable um and as one of my previous jobs uh, my managers always said we wake up in the morning and we work for a sustainable company right so uh, that's fantastic but of course you know that you can do a lot more right so there are tons of opportunities to actually run your business in a more efficient way and the part that i that i love about this these opportunities is that it goes hand in hand with what we do right so uh, trying to make our business better for the environment, better for our employees, better for our partners and the communities also brings opportunities to reduce costs to optimize our processes, which is of course you know what we have been focusing on for for years and years as well so there isn't a real conflict between for us you know what we want to do at ESG and how we want to drive the business and that's why it's so important that sustainability and ESG is integrated into the strategy you know that the more we do to to do better as a business from a financial point of view the more sustainable we're going to be and the same way you know the the more sustainable we want to be actually the better our yes. business will be the better our returns
2: so you've touched on a lot of things i want to drill down in but i also have to confess to an ulterior motive i um so I, uh, Williots. Uh, much smaller company than IFCO, and uh, we're relatively young, but we decided, you know, we, we believe our business can also help uh, make uh, um, supply chains more sustainable, uh, maybe in a slightly different way, but uh, very related to, to, to I think, what uh, you guys do as well. So we decided we've got to walk the talk. So uh, we're looking for, um, I'm hoping, some young uh, enterprising uh, uh ESG professional will be tuning in to hear what you have to say. And uh, we'll be interested in joining Willyot because we're looking to hire our very first kind of sustainability ESG uh, uh, person. So I'm just going to put that out there. It's very self-serving, but uh, my job is to hire that person. So uh, not actually why I uh, uh, invited you onto this podcast, but uh, it certainly is a coincidence that I'm very uh, happy about. Having got that little advert out of the way, um, I think we should spell out for people that are not familiar with IFCO, just in a little bit more detail, You know, what, what is it that you guys do?
3: Certainly. So we are quite a, a unique business. Uh, as I mentioned, we operate in the circular economy. And uh, when people ask me, you know, what, what does your business do? I say, well, we provide packaging as a service. That's exactly what we do. And, I, and the way that I explain our business is we, we don't produce anything. Right? we don't manufacture anything and we don't sell anything either and and then most people say well then what do you do you know <laughs> what what is it that you actually actually we we provide packaging as a service so we rent packaging so our our customers share and reuse our packaging in the supply chain so we work mainly in the fresh produce supply chain uh so the growers of of potatoes cucumbers and and, and tomatoes uh rent our crates uh, reusable packaging crates PCs we call them uh they them with their with their goods they send them to a retailer their customer uh, the retailer uses those crates to to put them on display at the supermarket so i'm sure many of of our um uh, listeners will, w- would have been uh, some of our crates at the supermarkets and then once they're empty uh, we collect them we fold them which is really important because you optimize your logistics flow your reverse logistics flows. We, we send them to what we call our service centers where we inspect the crates, we repair them. Uh, if they need to be repaired, we wash them, we sanitize them, and then we issue them back to the next user. So, and then that's when they start, you know, the net, the next cycle. So it's, uh, all around our customers and the supply chain sharing and reusing our packaging in their supply chain.
2: And so, what are the core competencies that you need to to operate that? You're, you, you you don't actually manufacture the crates that you're pooling, do you,
3: or do you? We don't. No, no, we don't. As as, as I said, we don't produce anything. So you so design we, so them. You them.
2: specify them. You so you we do design them. the crates. Need to, yeah.
3: Correct. Okay. And and again, no, we've been doing that for for many years now. So we have a lot of expertise in the, in the design, uh, optimal design. There's a big element now around automation, for example, at the at the warehouses, and therefore the design of the crate is more important than ever uh, because of that. And there are a lot of advantages from from an operational point of view versus single-use packaging uh, around the capacity of automation as well. So we design them, we don't produce them, and the core competence for us again is having that network and operating this in an efficient way. Uh, it, it ends up being quite complex, uh, because of the size of the, of the business that we have. So we have, we own over 370 million, uh, of these RPCs and we operate a pool of, of, uh, of, of these RPCs at a global scale. So we operate in Europe, we operate in, in America, in, in Latin, North America, Latin America, in Asia as well. So. Imagine the, 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 the toughest thing is actually to have all of these uh, crates, let's say like under control, making sure that we uh, know where they are, uh, that we can deliver them. They need to be at the right place at the right time. And of course, getting them back, sanitizing them and issue them again. No. So the essence of our business is around keeping this packaging in circulation as much as possible. And to me, I think that's the, that's probably the toughest part.
2: And so is your competition the cardboard box, the single-use cardboard box? Or?
3: Mainly, yes, mainly. So the, the most, let's say, implemented solution in the market is, is single-use packaging, is cardboard. I mean, there are other you know solutions like single-use plastic as well, but let's say the majority is a cardboard box. And then there are obviously other peers that do a, a similar uh, operation like Ifco does around reusable packaging, uh, but there aren't any that, that do it in, a, in a such a global large scale, let's say.
2: So you're, you're kind of a giant in this particular segment of the market.
3: I would say and, so. I think we are the industry leader.
2: And, and where is the world in terms of progressing to reusable uh, packaging in, in your segment? What, uh, what's the proportion of people that uh, use this circular approach versus just binning the, the stuff after they've used it?
3: Look, there's many different i mean you ask me about the world right and that's that's a th- a tough one because depending on where you are in the world okay. it's actually very different right so yeah. i would say for example yeah. in in europe for fresh produce is quite implemented let's say so the penetration of reusable packaging in in fresh produce is is quite large uh in other regions maybe in north america for example even now where you would think i mean one of the key let's say facilitators of what we do is is a modern supply chain of course you you need a a supply chain that has distribution centers, that has automation, that has reverse logistics in place, right? Um, And that's where, you know, solutions like ours, a standard solution actually make a real difference. If you go to other regions where are not so developed, like, for example, India, uh, then it's very difficult to implement a, a solution like ours. But again, going back to my point around the North America, even in North America, where, you know, you have a very modern supply chain, of course, the penetration is not as large. And and I have to say, you know, a, a big reason for that is that you know cardboard has been the standard solution for many, many years, right? And uh, whether as in Europe, again, we've been working on on replacing single-use packaging for the last 30 years and it's well implemented, over there is still it's still new. And I have a lot of conversations with you know potential customers or or customers that still have some some produce in in packaging, understanding the, the benefits also from a sustainability point of view, because you know. To be honest, I mean, we started actually with, with a big sustainability background because it was at the time when Germany had a legislation around waste. And actually, you know, our funders thought, okay, well, if, if there is a focus on reducing waste, then the best way to do that is actually not to generate any waste in the first place. So why don't we, we reuse these, yes. these rates? And they invented this, this model. You know? So there's a lot of debate around that. And, and there's still a lot of, of people that don't understand, let's say the differences or the improvements. Or the benefits of reusable packaging, and and they never looked at it from a from a sustainability point of view. So in the in the in in the past, it was all around efficiencies, no, We're finding efficiencies from an operational point of view. But of course, there are huge benefits of reusing packaging versus generating all all that waste in the in the first place. So would you say that in terms of
2: just at a very crude level? europe versus us is uh, is the majority of packaging reusable in europe or has it got to that point yet
3: well this is the thing it depends. it it, it depends on the category right so for a fruit and vegetable in let's say large uh, retail chains uh, yes, yes i would say the majority of packaging is reusable now of course if you look at other categories, if you look, of course, to durable goods, uh, the majority of packaging is single-use, whether it's single-use yes. plastic or whether it's single-use cardboard, right? Uh, but within uh, fresh produce, I would say, yes, there is a high penetration rate. Uh,
2: and and, and it sounds like we can't say that for the U.S. market, for fresh produce. It's, uh... No, not,
3: not not as much. Not as much, I think. I mean, and it's growing very, very fast. And and uh, we, we are growing as a business as well there because... Again, now the environmental sustainability element is is becoming more and more relevant. So there are, there are a lot of opportunities there, and there's a lot happening. Let's say, but you know, if we take a picture today, uh, yeah, the penetration is not as high in the U.S. But I'm sure it will be very soon because the, the, there is there is a lot of inertia in this move.
2: And um, you know we're an IoT podcast, so it's you know one of the reasons that I'm fascinated by this uh, adoption is you know it's sustainability as a driver. There's also other uh, drivers, but it means that we can actually start to apply IoT more to these packaging uh, systems. Uh, You know, it's it's hard to justify putting. a bluetooth sensor on a cardboard box but you can justify it on 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 a plastic uh, crate where would you say we are with uh, with the adoption of iot uh in reusable uh, packaging for for produce you know my sense is we're still early on in the market it's a, a lot of yeah.
3: potential i agree that's that's what i would say i think again the potential is huge as you said oh so, i mean well. In a single use packaging, it doesn't make a lot of sense, especially because of, of the cost. But, you know, everything we do is around product life extension. So we, we design our products so that they can last for a very long time, right? As long as possible. So therefore, if you have a device that, yeah, maybe you, you need to invest a bit, but you know, it's for a product that is going to last a very long time, then obviously the, the cost equation uh, becomes, becomes much better. Um, I think we're still early on, but at IFCO, we have a very strong program on on digitalization uh, of our business and of our asset base as well, and we really think there is a big opportunity for us to 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 benefit from this. And I see three main advantages of of uh, IoT for for what we do. No, the first one is around making things easier for our customers. No? So the ease of doing business, as we call it, uh, our customers uh, currently declare where they're sending their packaging to, so that we know we need to go and collect it there and we have our packaging under control you know in the future if you think about you know packaging uh, with with sensors um uh, there wouldn't be any sort of declarations right everything would happen automatically so therefore it would make their life easier as well actually much closer to what single-use packaging is right they they it's it's basically like a hassle-free service you don't need to worry about it just use it and then uh, everything else happens uh let's say on its own so that's one big advantage. The, the second advantage is for us as a business, again, going back to, to the point that I made around look, we're doing things to, to make our business better and therefore we're also making it more sustainable. So having more visibility of our assets in our supply chain will mean that we can operate our business in a more efficient way. And that means we can reduce cycle times, for example. So we will, uh, let's say, sweat our assets more. We can use them more times and therefore that's more sustainable. You need less packaging for that. Of course, you can lose less as well because you know where they are, so you can go and pick them up, et cetera. So it will improve our operation, but also it will help us in our own sustainability objectives as well in in making our business more sustainable. And then the third, let's say, advantage um, that I see is, you know, additional services. I mean, in the same way that that visibility in the supply chain helps us operate our business uh, better, more efficiently, it will also help our customers operate their business better. They will have visibility of their supply chain, both growers and retailers. Uh, you will have things like, of course, controlling damage, uh, temperature. I mean, you know, we we work with, with fresh produce. So uh, let's say supply chain tracking and traceability in the supply chain is super, super critical and important. More so if you think about topics like food waste. And therefore, you know, any opportunity that we have to provide that visibility to our customers, I think, will be very well received and would be an additional, let's say, benefit of using reusable packaging and working with with ECO.
2: I think this is a huge opportunity. So we're kind of, on one hand, we can optimize the uh, operations of the pallet pool. We can lose less crates. We can run with a smaller pallet pool. But the real opportunity, it seems to me, is optimizing what's in the crates. And here... Uh, you know, we're just starting to see the opportunity because, of course, until you can measure it, you don't really know how big the problem is. And then you suddenly see, uh, oh, my goodness, this is not a uh, this is not a, uh, a three day supply chain from the farm to the store. It's actually a, a six day uh, supply chain. And if you can you know, every day you can, uh, re- you know, as you start to see where the crates are, you can solve those problems and uh, save a day. And that's another day of shelf life, another day in the refrigerator, a better quality product, less less waste. So I think there's a huge opportunity. So let's go back to ESG itself, though. So what does someone in your role do? You know, you arrive at uh, um, you know, in the second half of this show, we're going to talk a bit about how you got this uh, job. and But, you know, you, you arrive uh, day one uh, at IFCO. What do you do to set up an ESG function? Because I think there's going to be a, I don't, you know, we're hire, trying to hire someone for ESG. My sense is this is one of the most in-demand job descriptions out there. And so there's going to be a lot of people who maybe they'll listen to this podcast. You know, what do I do? What's my agenda for my first 90 days? Uh, what what uh-huh. was your agenda? What did you do?
3: Yeah. Look, I think that the, the first thing is understanding the business. And, and in fact, you know, I'm a good example of that because, you know, my, my background is in engineering, but, but I haven't, I don't have a, an environmental, let's say, sort of background uh, from, from studies, uh, but, I, but I knew the business really well. Right. And, and I, I did it at my previous job and, and also here at IFCO. I, I knew the business quite well. And I think that's the first most important thing to be honest. Because again, as, as, as I think, you know, every ESG program is going to be different at each company. Right? You need to focus on the topics that are material for that company. And there's something called materiality, which is very common for, for us that work at, at ESG, which is understanding, you know, what do I focus on? Because, you know, everybody talks about, for example, carbon emissions. And yes, carbon emissions are, are, let's say, across the board important, but, you know, they're going to be more relevant for one type of industry than they are for others, right? So it's really important to know your business and know what you do so that you can decide which are the material topics that you need to focus on, right? And what, what is your business all about? Um, so, so for us, you know, one of, one of the things that I did when I, when I joined is also shape our program very much in line with what we do as a business. So understanding, okay, what does IFCO do? What is our purpose? And therefore, let's have a program that reflects that. And of course, let's try to continue doing, let's say, that, that good that I mentioned. Um, we, we, we are a sustainable business, but we can do better. So the, 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 let's say you need to know the business really well so that you know where to focus on. So that's one benefit. But the other big mm-hmm. benefit of knowing the business is that you need to work with people. And I think. Again, depending on how your structure is set up with your ESG program, in our case, we have a very small ESG team that that sets the guidance, the, the objectives and the strategy, let's say, and then works with the rest of the business to actually put that strategy in place, right? So you need to work with people every day. And look, for some of them, ESG or sustainability was already a priority, let's say, and it was already mm-hmm. embedded in what they do. For others, it's not. So it's very much about, you know, influencing and, and working with people so that they put the same priority to, to, to the ESG topics as they would do with any other, let's say business KPI. So it's a lot about, first of all, you know, setting the, setting the program and, and setting the direction. But most importantly, you know, getting people on board, working with all of the areas in the business so that that program can actually, let's say, happen, can actually uh, be, be put in place.
2: So you're learning the business, building the relationships. Um, presumably you're understanding the problems. You look for where you know where am I exposed as an organization, and uh, you, you're, you're trying to orchestrate visibility of that. And I'm assuming one of the tools you have is also one of your responsibilities, which is like reporting. Right? I'm assuming that's a big part of what you have to do, and it's those metrics that you know unless you measure it. Uh, things probably aren't going to improve. So it's probably a good thing that you are measuring it. Talk a little bit about that if you would.
3: Reporting is an interesting one, right? Because it's sort of like uh, something you have to do, but it's not the most exciting thing. And usually, as you say, no, it's it's where you start. I mean, you need to measure everything to to make sure that you can actually understand what is happening, therefore influence it and, and improve it. Uh, the challenge with reporting is that in complex organizations like ours who operate... Uh, across you know many different countries with with many different businesses, let's say uh, the level of reporting or the the level of of integration sometimes is not where it needs to be. So you need to work hard in trying to set that up in making sure that the, the the quality of of the data that you have is is at a certain standard. And that means that you need to you know work with the people in getting it done. So and it's usually you know the kind of thing that people don't like too much to be honest. Uh, yeah. So therefore you know you, you need to, you need to manage that in a, in a proper way as well, because, you know, you don't want to be the reporting people, right? You, you need to be inspiring. I think, you know, a, a big responsibility that we have at the ESG team is to be inspiring. I mean, a lot of people join our company because we are a sustainable business, right? So we want to make sure that they live that, that that is part of our culture. It cannot be part of reporting. I mean, uh, reporting is the necessary evil and, and, and you need it as well, of course, to improve your business, but it cannot all be about reporting
2: right so it's you have to it's about being authentic we say we're sustainable but let's let's really walk the the talk and uh, and and i think you're right this your function can be a real asset for bringing some of the most uh, smartest people into your your company if you're doing a good job people will really want to uh, be part of that uh, uh, certainly the, the people that commit their lives to their business for me work is more than just a way of earning money it's uh and if, if you're in that class of person then you want to be doing something that makes the world a better place so you, you can uh, be part of that i'm sure so how okay. do you get people to change what they do so you you, you lift up the the lid and you see ah oh, this is uh this is not good how do you how do you get people to change what they do
3: we me it's all about the win-win Right. So, uh, and and again, we we are fortunate because of what we do, and and as I mentioned before, the vast majority of the in the initiatives that that we drive or that we want the business to drive around ESG and and achieving our our goals are in line with the objectives of the business to actually do things better, to to do them more efficiently, to reduce costs, to optimize throughput. They're very much aligned. So, you know, in most of the cases, people don't need to you know, completely think out, outside of what they were doing already. is about doing more of what they're doing or looking at things in a slightly different way. So the win-win is critical, right? There there needs to be opportunities for them to improve in their own, let's say, KPIs in their own priorities, but also contributing to the ESE program. And as I mentioned, I think in our company, we're fortunate because uh, that happens almost, you know, uh, on its own, let's say. So if, and I'll give you an example now. Obviously, part of our footprint is around transport, right? We, we move crates around. We, we actually turn our, our crates. Uh, last year, we turned them two billion times, right? So these are crates moving around, let's say the, the supply chain, uh, in trucks in most cases, but we also do a rail and, and boat to actually reduce the emissions. Um, and therefore that's a big source of emissions. Now, of course, it's a big source of cost as well, right? So, If you look at your network, if you look at the type of vehicles that you're using, if you look at things like your field rate uh, at at the truck, uh, you're trying to optimize your cost, right? So you're going to do less kilometers, for example, uh, optimize your route, and therefore you're going to be able to reduce your cost. And guess what? You're also going to reduce your CO2 emissions. So for the most part, there are initiatives that are directed towards doing that, right? Towards improving our business uh, from a cost point of view, but also from a sustainability point of view. So there's not a lot of convincing that needs to happen because, you know, it's part of what they're here to do as well. And that's one element. And then the other element is that, again, it's in the culture. No? So, uh, you know, probably 10 years ago, it was a lot of convincing that, look, this is the right thing to do, reducing emissions or reducing waste, etc., now everybody knows that everybody understands that, and they know that they have to do it. Right? That is that is part of what we do. Just as you know, everybody understands that we need to reduce costs and and optimize our processes. So I think it's very much part of our culture. Maybe there are other companies that are more old fashioned where they still don't have that culture, and maybe it's a bit more of convincing. But at a company like Ifco, uh, with what we do and and let's say the essence of our business model, I think that's very much understood and there is a there is a passion there is there is a also um a lot of drive to further uh drive sustainability in the business
2: and would you say carbon is a proxy for cost are the two can can you know when we're trying to drive down the carbon footprint are we essentially driving cost out of the business
3: for the most part yes i mean again it depends on what you do but i'll give you two examples you know um uh, transport is one, right? So if you're able to reduce your distances, then you can reduce your cost. So and and you can reduce your CO2 emissions. So in that case, yes. If we think about plastic, for example, one of the ways to reduce the car the carbon footprint of plastic is to use recycled plastic instead of virgin plastic. And okay, it depends on the market and the time, but recycled plastic can be cheaper than virgin plastic. So therefore, it will reduce cost. There are other elements where, for example, you think about offsetting your emissions, right? Offsetting your residual emissions, where you need to invest in carbon credits. Well, obviously that comes at a cost. So in that case, you know that that formula wouldn't wouldn't work. But for the most part, I I would think so. And I can tell you again now. Another another element is uh, for us heating the water that we use to wash the crates, um, and that obviously consumes uh, energy. Let's say gas, for example. In some cases, well, you know, the, the less energy that we use uh, to wash the crates and to make the process more efficient, then we reduce our cost, but we also u- reduce our carbon emissions.
2: And to change tack, but it is actually related, um, where does where do you report to? Who, who's your boss? Where does ESG fit in the corporate structure?
3: Yeah. Well, I think in, in our case, that was very clear from the beginning. I report to the CEO and, and of course, it's not by coincidence. Now this is a, a super important topic for the company, uh, for us because, you know, it touches again, all of our business, but it touches all of our stakeholders as well. It touches, you know, our customers, of course, our employees, uh, but also even our investors, right? So, um, I report directly to the CEO because of, of where ESE needs to be at IFCO. And also, I think from, from, from my boss's own perception of where ESE needs to be as well. So he's a, a, true advocate of this. He's the first one that is, that is very ambitious actually about what we should do and how EFCO should lead the industry in sustainability and ESE. And therefore, that's why, you know, he wants to make sure that he, he has, you know, let's say direct overseeing and, and visibility of what is happening at the ESE program directly from the leadership team.
2: So, uh, Inigo, I'd love to hear a bit about um, your career. I was spying on you on LinkedIn, and it seems like you've done a fair bit of time in academia. Where, 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 where did you do all your degrees? And uh, uh, it seems like it was uh, you've been around the world a little bit.
3: A little bit, yeah. So I'm Spanish, uh, based in Spain. I grew up in Spain, actually. But I spent my last year of high school in in the States to learn English. To spend a the year there and learn English abroad. Oh, where, whereabouts
2: uh, in, were you in high school? In
3: in Long Island, in New York. Okay, great. At a boarding school in a very small town called Saint uh, James, uh, yeah. a school called Knox. So that was a very different experience for me. A small small boarding school, very traditional. And as as I, I was growing up in Spain. You know, when you're 15, 16 years old in Spain, you you know, the, the world starts to open. You start going out, spending time with friends, etc. So this was a bit different for me because basically at a boarding school, you know, you're in, in school all day. Well, it was uh, you know, been a huge road.
2: shock. Uh, the, the kind of the American culture and the Spanish culture are very yeah. different. And, you know, all the right. age of majority over... In the States, you know, it's effectively 21. And uh, in Europe, you're already an adult when you were in high school. <laughs> that, yeah,
3: that's exactly, that's exactly how it felt <laughs> back then. But look, it was a great experience. I mean, you know, you grow up, you're, you're used to having sort of everything done for you and, you know, everything decided for you. And then you're there and you need to really figure things out and adapt. And and we had to, let's say, do a lot of stuff at school as well. So, uh, they, I mean, one one thing that I always talk about is, for example, ironing. No, I had to start ironing my clothes, and I remember I was used to, you know, uh, somebody helping me out at home ironing my clothes. And right. the first day I got there, I said, "Okay, I'm gonna do my laundry. I'm gonna have to iron my clothes," and and I, I ironed absolutely everything. No, so every piece of clothing <laughs> I had. Your that socks, only happened your once. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That was only my first time. Of course, the second time, you know, I only ironed whatever I had to iron, really. Everything else just went. <laughs> but no, overall, really good experience, I, I would say. You know, you, you mature. That's the reality. You see, you, you, you see life in a, in a different way. Uh, it was tough sometimes because of those differences. But overall, when you look back, uh, you, you, you see it as a great experience because you, you basically grow up and 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 become you know the, the part of the person that you're going to be. So anyway, after I did that, you know, in senior in high school in the states, you know how it is, you know, you're already applying to universities, doing your SATs. My initial plan was not to to stay in the states. Actually, my initial plan was to come back to to Spain and study. Uh but as I got into that sort of, you know, environment of applications and interviews and you have a a college advisor at school, etc. Um, I thought, of course, with my parents as well, man, maybe it's not a bad idea for me to stay and study abroad, study here. So I applied to several different schools, um, for engineering. Uh, I ended up going to Michigan, uh, to, to the city of Flint, uh, to a university called GMI, General Motors Institute at the time. Uh, it was called Kettering University, uh, which was a, a university founded by GM, actually.
2: I see. So I saw your early career was in the automobile industry. This is Correct. making sense now. Okay.
3: Of course. Yeah, yeah it made all, all the sense. And, and my college advisor was a super fan of this school. It's a, it's a really good engineering school. It's a very small school. We were like 2,000 students. Uh, but it's very unique because basically every student has uh, what, what they call a co-op sponsor. So students work and study at the same time. So half of the year you're in school, and the other half of the year, you're actually working from year one. So already, Amazing. you know, I started my my first job. I was, I was, I just turned 18 when I started working at an automotive factory, actually in Spain. So my co-op sponsor was General Motors Spain, uh, Open Spain.
2: That is so good. I, I I did something similar, not quite as extreme in England. Uh, I did a computer science thin sandwich course, and it was one year in academia, six months in industry, a year in academia, six months in industry, and then another year. And it was so good. It was just oh, You grow up pretty fast.
1: Yeah. Uh, uh,
3: and it's really, I mean, it's so practical Look, and again, now coming from the Spanish background where most of the careers are very theoretical i had friends that i was studying you know engineering at the same time that i was and there was so much theory for them uh, compared to what i was doing i mean my school already i remember when i visited the school for the first time i was there with my parents while i was still in new york and and my dad who is an engineer uh, we we went around and they showed us the the school and the facilities and the labs and my dad loved the labs because he was saying, "Look, when I studied engineering, we had nothing like this, no. and in the states, of course, it was all about you know the labs, the practical application of the things that you're studying in in class
1: oh
2: and again, I had a similar experience my, my I, I grew up in England, but I, I had a brief stint in an American school, and I remember just the difference, the resources, the uh, amount of uh, hands-on and practical yep. stuff. Because I went back to England and they put me in the remedial class because we hadn't been doing the reading, writing, arithmetic type uh, stuff. But Anyway, yep. so I, I, I kind of, yours is more advanced, but I get what you're saying.
3: <laughs> yeah, so overall good experience. It was also tough because that meant that we, we basically, we were working uh, for three months, then we studied for three months. So every three months I went back and forth to the States. And my, my job was actually, I, I already lived in Spain. I'm from, I'm in Madrid. Sorry. I'm from the north of Spain, from Pamplona. Uh, but I moved to, to Madrid when I was eight with my family because of my dad's job. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my, my work with GM was actually in a city called Zaragoza, which is three hours away from Madrid. So, so I was already living abroad uh, then as well. So it was tough because I was basically either studying or working especially in the summertime because all of my friends of course had long summers associated to university uh, while I had to work uh, but look overall I thought it was it was a great experience um, of course learned a lot but it was funny I remember the first day I went to work there and and I did like a rotational program right so every three months that I spent there I was doing something different the objective I had like a mentor uh, Pedro who who was a fantastic person and basically took care, care of me and, and assigned me different assignments within the different departments throughout my my five years of university plus my senior thesis um, and my first assignment was in the in the communications department and when I got there okay I I, I I was I was 17 at the time no I just turned 18 uh, but I looked like I was 14 probably uh so so i got there and i was wearing a tie of course my mom said no you would you need to wear a tie and a a jacket and and i got to the to the communications department hr department and i introduced myself and they thought i was somebody's son that was looking for his or (laughs) father or mother you know what are you doing here like no i'm here to work (laughs) you know so very, very, very interesting experience and, and I really enjoyed it. I learned so much, you know, with so, so many different things. And of course, you know, people really took care of me and, and taught me. And, and I appreciate that even now, know, when I think about, you know, I have in, in my team, I have apprentices, I have working students. And, and I remember at the time, because when you spend different times with different people, you know, again, throughout the the career, of course, you're going to find people that, that are more devoted to, to this, that really believe in, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. young, uh, let's say professionals that are starting their careers and how important that time is for you and others that maybe either don't have the time or don't have the interest. No, so I always thought when it would be my turn, right? To, to, to dedicate my time and my effort and, and. And and help these these, these uh, young uh, adults out. I'm really going to 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 do it right because I know how important it is for them. You know? So really great experiences overall. Cool.
2: So, so you went uh, you went from there.
3: Uh, after that, and, and, and I just... I continued in the industry and I worked. And now I did a lot of let's say uh, manufacturing work. Obviously, I was working at a car plant. And I worked at uh, one of my terms. I actually went to to Germany as a student. We had a an exchange program from the U.S. to to Germany, but the university had a lot of Amer- a lot of Germans that came to the U.S. Uh, to to GMI, but we didn't have so many Americans that went to Germany because, of course, you know, engineering, mechanical engineering in German for an American, it was going to be very difficult. So. At, at some point, my university said, okay, we need to have this program in English so that you know we also have some students because if not, this is not a proper exchange program. So I was actually part of the first group of students that went to Germany for three months to learn at a Fahoschule, uh, to learn engineering, and it was in English, and it was fantastic. I really enjoyed it. And I also stayed for another three months in Opel in, in the headquarters, which is in a town called Rüsselsheim. Um, in Germany, and I, I there I was working in the R&D uh, team because I was obviously used to the manufacturing part, but this was very different and I wanted to do something different. There aren't many R&D facilities in Spain. We have a, a lot of manufacturing plants, actually. The automotive industry is very big in Spain, but not in R&D. So actually, when I finished my university and I finished my work with Opel, of course, you know, I had the possibility to continue to work in Opel, but mm-hmm. I thought, well, I want to do something different. And I joined SEAT, uh, which is part of Volkswagen, uh, which actually is the only car, uh, company that has an R and D facility in Spain. So I, I joined their R and D team. I joined a trainee program as well, where I did several rotations and I spent some time in Germany again, working for Audi. Uh, and then I worked in a, in a department that was really interesting that was called a PKO product cost and optimization, which is basically uh, optimizing the, the cost of the, of the product of the car, but also the weight. So we had a team of engineers whose only purpose was to reduce the cost of the car and to reduce the weight of the car, which is, of course, very much related to cost.
2: Interesting. So I maybe I'm uh, taking a leap too far, but it seems like this is kind of a little bit linked with uh, carbon footprint in a way. You're you're looking at the carbon cost, you're looking at the weight cost versus the carbon cost. There's, it, seems it, like certainly
3: this is. it certainly yeah. is. And if you think that... You know, if you related it to, to obvious things like, you know, miles per gallon and, and fuel consumption, obviously your weight is going to make a, a major difference in, yes. in the performance of your car, right? So very much so. Yeah, it was, it was all around, you know, doing the same thing, but in a better way, doing more with less. You know? And yeah. to me, sustainability is all about that as well.
2: Very good. So how did you go from the automobile industry into reusable transport to returnable transport uh-huh. items, RTIs? Okay.
3: That's a great question. Um, I, I studied an MBA, so after my time at, at SEAT, I studied an MBA in Barcelona at ESA. Um, so I, I quit my, my job and I, and I did um, a full-time MBA for two years, wow. Wow. and I loved it. I really yeah. enjoyed it. Actually, it was a fantastic experience from a personal point of view, but I also learned a lot as an engineer. There are so many topics that, that you don't cover in school. So it was, it was very complementary to the to, to my background, let's say to my studies. Um, and when you're in the MBA on the second year, you have companies come in and present, and they're doing recruiting, of course, and, and you have opportunities to, to get to know new companies, new people, et cetera. No? And, and it's really, really great, actually. And, and one day I was working at a, at, a, at a room with a friend of mine, and, and he said, Oh, there's, there's a company coming, coming this afternoon, which is called Chep. And I, of course, I, I had no idea who Chep were. And I said, Chef, what do they do? And my friend says, They do pallets. And I said, Wow, that sounds boring. And <laughs> and he said, <laughs> And he said, No, actually, it's quite an interesting company. You know, they they, they have this very sophisticated network that like, they use for pallets, etc. I'm like, Pallets? You mean the, the wooden things? Yeah, yeah, pallets. Of course. You know, imagine me coming from an automotive background, <laughs> <or an engineer, laughs> that
2: It's like you know? the Stone Age. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
3: So, I ended up going, no, no, come along, so I ended up going and look i'm, a, I'm, a, I'm in general you know I'm, I'm, I'm really curious about things and I love learning and I love you know learning about new stuff so i thought well yeah let's let's learn about what they do. So I attended the presentation. It was actually the president of, of Europe at the time that came over and, and made the presentation, and then we had like a little cocktail you know with students to to have wow. a drink and I remember at that time, of course, I found it interesting, uh, and at that time, I was thinking, you know if I ever work here. I don't see myself like, yeah, at a cocktail talking about pallets. I mean, come on, how <laughs> how terrible can this be, right? And then, of course, I actually worked for Chep and Brambles for seventeen years, so imagine <laughs> who would have said
2: and and so so, what is it that makes it more interesting than than you would think uh,
3: uh, yeah, yeah that's that's really it because of course, when you say a pallet, you know it doesn't sound exciting. I think what's exciting about this industry is everything that is behind the pipe, right all the stuff that you don't see um and and how complex it is really and the the let's say the scale of of the operation of, of the solution is it's obviously a very smart solution but the scale of everything that goes up in the in the everything that happens in the background in order for this to to actually work let's say to make it happen and and to be honest they had a really interesting program as well the, i joined the brambles program which was a Three-year rotational program uh, again. Uh, okay. So I spent one year in Germany, one year in London, and then I came back to Madrid. Actually, I had been out of Madrid for many years, mm-hmm. and and I came back to Madrid to, to work. And, and you're so, in
2: Madrid now, are you? That's what I'm based. in
3: Madrid now. Yeah. So after after London, I came to Madrid, and now I'm I continue to be based in Madrid. So it was the program already made it interesting as well for me. Again, from my background and spending time abroad, etc. I was always interested in working in, in let's say international backgrounds you know, with, with people from other cultures working abroad as well and I, I didn't really see myself working for you know, a Spanish business uh, located in Spain with, with a, only like a local business. I always had you know maybe the, the maybe in my unconscious actually, uh, working for an international business with an international background et cetera, which was more of what I was used to actually.
2: So I, I saw one of the things that you focused on was Brexit, right? That was you know, ah, yes. one of your yeah, responsibilities. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, how yeah. has Brexit, you know, mm-hmm. how, how how is the actuality, the reality compared to what you were kind of preparing for?
3: Wow. Brexit. that That's an interesting one. So look, the... Well, the, the way that, I'll give you the, the reason why I did Brexit, actually. So I was already working in sustainability at Bramble's and and Brexit was something that obviously people knew about. Uh, of course, nobody knew whether it was still going to happen or not, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, this was, uh, I mean, the referendum had already taken place, but there was so much debate around the implications and whether it was going to be a hard Brexit or not, you, you know, mm-hmm. all, all the story, of course. Um, and what happened at Bramble's was that you know, there were different people in different departments sort of looking at Brexit on how it would affect them. Uh, but probably not in a, in a very serious manner because nobody really knew what was going to happen. And, you know, let's say from the first uh, identification, we thought, well, there, it's not going to be that bad. Let's say, no, it doesn't really affect us so much. But as things started to develop, then of course, you know, we started to look into Brexit in a bit more depth. We realized, well, maybe it actually does. So one of the, Decisions that was made was okay. We need like a like a Brexit project manager. We need somebody in the company that is coordinating all of the efforts that understands what is happening and of course how is this going to affect us so that we can put a a mitigation plan in place. Um, and of course, you know, who's the who has the profile for that? Well, it's very dif- difficult, right? I mean, there isn't just one single profile to do that. I mean, other than somebody that had done, you know, the the year two thousand project back in. In Ninety-eight, ninety-nine, which was sort of similar. You no, know, a big disruption coming in. Uh, obviously, from a technology point of view, was very different. Uh, but here it was, yeah, something sort of unknown. A bit, it could be a potential big disruption. And 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 one of the one of my mentors at, at Brimble's asked me, you know, we we were thinking about this, we were debating this in the in the leadership team, and we thought, you know, I thought maybe you would be a good candidate for that. And and I thought to myself, you know. Why me? I'm not British. That's the first thing I thought. So I I don't know anything about Brexit. Uh, And therefore, you know, why would you want a Spaniard, you know, looking after Brexit as a company? And and the the answer to my question was precisely because you're Spanish. So we want somebody that is completely outside of this whole, let's say, political debate, because, of course, you need to understand that Brexit was something very, very controversial, as you know. Uh, Of course, you know, uh, let's say... In 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 day-to-day life of 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 people in the UK and people in Europe in general, but also in day-to-day life at work, right? So you had different people with different opinions, so it could get a bit, let's say, sort of personal. Um, so they yeah. thought actually having somebody that has nothing to do with this is probably a good idea. So for me it was a bit tough because I thought, well, you know, I think I need to learn. I mean, I knew a little bit of course, but I think I yeah. need to learn a lot more about Brexit. So I ended up, you know, reading the Financial Times and listening to BBC and watching you know, UK TV basically every day uh, as part of my job, actually, which made it really interesting. I actually learned a lot. I, I, Of course, I had been with the business for already, what, 14, 15 years, so I knew the business very well. But, you know, this opened me a lot of different things about about the business. I was already very much into sustainability as well. So therefore, you know, areas like finance or areas like, I don't know, uh, things like, of course, customs, you know, which, which was very important for us. Um, I learned a lot in in, in that as well and and of course very soon we realized that Brexit was a big deal for us as well just as it was for many companies so Mm -hmm. um, you asked me you know how did it turn out at the end versus what was what was expected let's say again you know if you were asked me at the beginning of my assignment I would say well Brexit is is not going to be that bad then if you ask me at the middle of my assignment we were like oh my god what's going to happen because with pallets I mean There was one big deal with pallets, and and maybe you learned about this, which was around phytosanitation uh, conditions. Mm -hmm. Uh, And basically, you know, there, there is a, an international rule uh, called ISPM 15, uh, that, that is uh, set up by, by FAO, by the Food and Agriculture Organization of UN that determined that every piece of, uh, timber that crosses uh, international borders, needs to be sanitized, needs to be phytosanitized to uh, kill bacteria, basically. And this is to protect the, the forest. Um, so there was a, a um, bacteria called nematode that would basically destroy a full forest many years ago. And there's still cases in some places, isolated cases, but in any case, that meant that pallets, you know, that would travel the world, let's say, would need to be treated, heat treated. So basically you put them in a kiln, you heat treat them for hours, and then that kills, you know, all of the living animals in, in the pallet and therefore in the wood. And therefore, you know, the cross contamination, eh, uh, possibility is, is, is gone. No? Uh, now but there what was if an the pallet exception. has
2: got something on it. Obviously, you can't do that. So that's well, just well, you when do you're... that
3: when you manufacture the pallet. You just need to do it once. Oh, I see. When you manufacture the pallet. Okay. Yeah. It's with okay. fresh timber when you manufacture. Um, and then, I mean, the reason why Brexit affected this was, That the European Union, when this was put in place, set up a rule that movements of pallets within the European Union uh, did not need uh, phytosanitation, did not need this treatment because all of the countries were already doing what they had to do to protect the forest, right? And of course, this included the UK. So when the UK decided to leave the European Union, that meant that this rule did no longer apply, or this exemption Mm -hmm. did no longer apply. So therefore, All of the pallets crossing the UK back and forth every year would need to be heat treated. Now, when you have a company like Brambles that owns over 300 million pallets in circulation, and of course you cannot distinguish one from the other, all of a sudden you realize: well, does this mean that I need to heat treat my full pool, my whole pool, so that I am uh, complying with the with the legislation, with the law? Let's say. Uh, so again, a, a really big deal now, there was only one small advantage which is that uh of course part of the key to, to reusable packaging is standardization so there is a uh, a size and a and a sort of a weight and a design a standard design of a palette um that is called the euro palette, so it's used in Europe mainly, and the dimensions are eight hundred by twelve hundred and in the u k there is another uh, size of palette that we call the u k palette or the international palette, which is 100 by 1200. And this was actually an, an advantage because most of the flows to the UK were done on this specific format. So, you know, if worse came to to, to to show, to say, okay, we need to heat treat all of our pool, well, at least, you know, we knew that it would have to be only or the majority of the palettes would be of that format and not okay. the rest as well.
2: So the British non-standard, we're going to do it our way, actually helped of in uh, this. So um, so is the net that it was like not super disruptive for Bramble's uh, business? Or, or
3: It was very disruptive it? in terms of getting ready for it, to be honest. I mean, at the end, things worked out quite well. But I mean, again, no, challenges like this, challenges around costumes, challenges around GDPR. I mean, there were so many issues, as I mentioned that just getting ready for it was a big deal. was a big deal, a big, deal. Huge, big project. Deal. It basically affected every single part of the organization. And I
2: know you're not an economist, but what's your view on the impact of this on Europe? Europe's economy and what's your view on the impact of the UK economy and I realize this is like a huge subject so just kind of your well headline view of this I'm really yeah I,
3: look, I, I continue to read about that and and basically yeah. you know, of course when when I when I and this is of course my personal opinion but I when I was going through all of this and I met you know a lot of employees colleagues of mine that were pro-Brexit actually no and I was trying to also understand it but to me you know, looking at, you know, all of the implications uh, for us as a business, but in general to the economy, of course, you know, it didn't make much, much sense looking at it from, from the outside. Um, and I continue to read and I see that, you know, the UK economy already at the time was, was suffering from this and, you know, uh, uh, same, same as the European, but in a more accelerated way. And I think that's the situation now as well, you know, that basically the, the growth that, that is taking place in the UK is not as, as it would have been if If it were uh if it wasn't for brexit so unfortunately um i think um it, it has affected them will it will it continue to affect them for a long time i don't know that's that's I think that's what nobody really knows, but okay. so far, I think it definitely has
2: well. This has been fascinating. And we could talk some more about it. I, I know that we haven't gone right up to the final piece of the story, which is you move from Brambles to, to IFCO. So maybe we should just say a few words on that and then we'll get to the, the really fun bit, which is your music choice. But, uh...
3: <laughs> sure. So, I mean, uh, for some people that might not know, IFCO was actually part of the Brambles group uh, for almost 10 years. Um, so I already knew IFCO from before. Uh, but Brambles decided to divest Ifco in 2018, and and basically, uh, no, sorry, 2019, um, and they they sold the business, no, and and Ifco is, is a company that, that does reusable packaging specifically for fresh produce uh, by by reusing uh, the plastic plastic crates, no, so very similar business to to what Chef is doing with with pallets, let's say, but of course. In a more niche market, which is the, the fruit and veg uh, let's say primary packaging in in most cases. So um when 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 Bramble sold Difco, to me it it, it was a, a, a sad decision, let's say, because of work, I was already working in sustainability. Of course, there were, you know, all of the great things around reusable packaging applied to, to DIFCO as well. And I thought, well, it's a great business unit, it's very complementary to what we're doing. It's part of our story. We're already working in things like plastic, of course. We were working on things like like water conservation, et cetera. Um, and I thought, well, you know, this is a business decision. Of course, I respected it, but it, it was sort of sad, let's say. So um, then Mike Pulley, my, my current uh, boss, joined uh, IFCO a year after it was sold as a CEO. And then a year after that, he actually called me and said, well, he sent me a text and he said, how are you doing, Inigo? Uh, you know we need to catch up soon, and of course, you know that the, the moment I saw that, I knew I knew what was coming, right? And, and it's funny because it never crossed my mind be, before. I don't know why. You know, when we sold the business, or later on, it never crossed my mind that oh, you know, what's going to happen with sustainability at Ifco? I mean, I thought about it, of course, yeah. but for some reason, I never saw myself going to Ifco. Actually, uh, of course, the moment I saw that text, I knew I knew what was uh, the question I was going to get, no. Uh so of course, you know, are you interested? And and I and, and to be honest, the first thing I thought was, wow, you know, I, I was sort of put back because my 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 reflection was I'm going to have to make a tough decision. That was that was the first thing that crossed my mind. Because I was really happy at Brambles. I had been there for for many years. I had done many different roles, but in the last years I was working in sustainability. We we have a fantastic we had a fantastic program. Uh, I was, I was, you know, with with lots of, of course, uh, room for development as well, and therefore I really had had no reason to leave, right? But on the other hand, I thought, well, maybe an opportunity comes that I cannot say no to, and then I need to think about about doing something else, and that's exactly what happened, of course. So this was a, a fantastic opportunity for me to lead uh, an ESG functional sustainability uh, program at a company. Uh, and to you know, basically shape it in the in the way that I that I wanted, and and to take it to the next level. So, uh, really, really excited, and and really actually, you know, uh, let's say thankful for given the opportunity to do something like that.
2: And how big are the relative uh, sustainability teams in those two organizations? Uh, and and maybe you can contrast the size of the companies. I'm just trying to get a yeah. metric uh, in my head. You
3: know. Look, when, um, I mean, my team is actually quite small. I mean, the, let's say the approach is very similar. Of course, you know, basically I, 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 I joined the sustainability team at, at Chep and Brambles fairly early on, let's say. So, so my boss, uh, was the head of sustainability who had just started sort of uh, started the, the function, let's say. So I, I joined quite early on and therefore, you know, influence in, in shaping the, the approach to sustainability, of course, the, the objectives, the targets, the program, etc. Uh, again, working with, with my manager. Um, and therefore, you know, obviously, the approach I have taken is very similar. So uh, because they are very similar companies as well now, in terms of what we do as a business and and with sustainability, of course, I think what what really matters is that you shape a program that is in line with what you do as a business, right? So. Uh, of course there are certain elements that everybody has to look at all companies need to, to look at but look you know a, a car manufacturer for example is very different to what we do so it wouldn't make any sense to have you know a standard program there, there isn't like like a one size fits all so again both companies are very similar in what we do with again differences in the product maybe in the in the, in the regions but in any case uh, uh, there are a lot of similarities so the way that I see my my team now and what we're doing is a bit like what Brambus was doing a few years ago. Because of course, uh, in this case, uh, Ifco is a much smaller company, and they have already gone through that journey, uh, probably uh, uh, that that we are going through now at, at Ifco. So, uh, the main I think the main aspect that is that is that is similar and that is very important is that I mean, there's many ways to set up a program, a sustainability program, a E program, and and function. Uh, but I, I tend to see it in, in two different main, mainly two different ways. One is, you know, having, let's say, a, a, a team that is part of, of the business and you have, well, you have a dedicated function with a group of experts that are touching each of the different elements of the program and develop initiatives, develop programs, develop uh, let's say, uh, collaborations, et cetera. So everything is centralized with a big ESE team that is, the owner of the program. And then the other option is to integrate the program within the business, right? Which is what we have done at at IFCO, which is we have a very small team that sets the the direction, sets the ambition, let's say, and then collaborates with the business who is actually the different departments who are the ones that need to drive the program, that need to put in place the initiatives, that need to actually, again, not do do the same as they, they were doing before, but in a better way. And, okay. and I think this, this way works better because first of all, they have the expertise and, and they have the knowledge. And this is again, you know, sustainability in the majority of, of, of things that we manage. It's the day to day of our business, right? So it's, it's transport is uh, raw materials. It's, of course, washing and, and cleaning. All of that is, is what we do in our day to day. It's just do looking at it from a different lens, let's say. So, yeah. um, Again, now answering your question, very similar, but of course you know, Brambus is a much bigger company and their program is a bit more developed as well. So they have a, a slightly bigger, uh, let's say, structure. Uh, but one thing that is similar as well is that, again, it's very much integrated into the business and it's very much integrated into the strategy as well, which I think is really important.
2: All right. Well, so on to my last question, which is three songs. uh what uh, what three songs would you choose as your favorite songs and why?
3: Yeah, I was um, look. I I I love music and I love all sorts of music. Um, but I was thinking, okay, which which ones would I choose? And it was so difficult, right? Of course. So the first one I would say is is Thunder Road from Bruce Springsteen, uh-huh. and the reason for that is that well, I I love the song, but it's also about the artist. I mean, for me, it's more than the song; it's about the artist and and what they they have meant to me. So. I am, I am a brother of four. We are five siblings in my family. I'm the youngest of, of five. And, and I used to share a room with, with one of my brothers and, and he loved Bruce Springsteen when we were growing up. So, of course, you can imagine you share a room <laughs> and he's the older. So that, that means that I need to listen to whatever he likes to listen and you end up liking it. So I love Bruce Springsteen. I'm, I'm a big fan and, and Thunder Road is a fantastic song. So that would be my, my first choice. My second choice is another great band that I love, which is which is uh, Straits, and they have a song called "Under Road." I sorry, um, "Tunnel of Love," yes. and The Straits was was a song that The was a band that I, I loved growing up, you know, with my friends, and, uh, and and it was a a band that I you know when I grew up they were not doing concerts anymore, you know, they had done concerts up until the nineties. Let's say and they stopped that, and I would have always loved to go to a concert of of dire Straits. And and you know when I, uh, eventually I ended up going to a concert of Dire Straits and I loved it so uh, so and this is I mean again no I I could have many many songs from Dire Straits but this is one that I really like so one that that uh, that is close to my friends as well and then the last one uh, a bit different uh, a song from Louis Armstrong and here it's about the artist as well so and and I would say you know what a wonderful world two mm-hmm. main reasons first of all because my dad is a huge fan of of jazz. And when we were young, we would travel, you know, for the weekend, we would go skiing or we would go spend the weekend uh, somewhere by car, of course. And, and we all had a time in the car to play our own music. And of course, my dad had the longest time of all of us and he would always play jazz music. So basically, you know, I've grown up listening to jazz music. He had, you know, hundreds of, of uh, records of, of jazz. Uh, and i hated it <laughs> because it reminded me you know in the car you know the music of course i wanted to listen to the smurfs or whatever <laughs> but, uh, at the time and and he you know for him it was all jazz so i i hated it because it reminded me of me getting sick in the car etc but of course you know then you grew up and you learn to appreciate these things and now i love jazz and of course it reminds me of, of my dad and, you know, A Wonderful World is a fantastic, positive uh, uh, song. And, and I'm a very positive person as well. So there's a link to the, to the let's say, lyrics of the song as well.
2: Uh, those are wonderful choices. I really appreciate the, uh, the, the, the thinking behind them as well. So, Inigo, thanks so much for sharing that with us. Pleasure. So, hope you enjoyed that uh, conversation. A uh, really fascinating uh, career. Really nice guy. Uh, Real pleasure to have on the show. Um, If you have been, thanks very much for listening. Thanks very much for watching. And I look forward to seeing you next week.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more.